everyone, and thank you for joining me through the Blackthorn Arch, a podcast all about folklore, spirits, and all things spooky. My name is Hearth, spelt H-E-A-R-T-H, and today we're going to be exploring the glorious and gory world of folk medicine. Now, if you're squeamish, this might not be the episode for you. Don't worry, not all of the episodes are going to be like this at all. This is just something that I've always been really fascinated with. The idea of folk medicine draws on a lot of practices, including herbalism, witchcraft, spirituality, superstition, and just a little bit of real medicine. And it creates this really horrific, gory form of folk medicine, where often the cures were worse than the medical complaints. Now, before we get started, I do feel the need to say that under no circumstances should you be trying the remedies that I'm going to be talking about today. Although in their time period they may have seemed like a good idea, I can guarantee that you will have much better luck going to your primary care doctor and making sure that you're getting the treatment that you need. Because some of these remedies are questionable at best, because I'm pretty certain you will get better treatment going to your doctor rather than wearing a dead mole around your neck like a necklace. And oh no, I'm not joking, that was actually something that was recommended to people. Medicine is nothing new. We've seen it throughout history in one form or another with varying success, but modern medicine as we see it today is a far cry from what used to be used throughout history. Even to someone who lived a hundred years ago, the type of medicine that we can do today would have been beyond their wildest imagination. So, with this episode, it's important to keep your mind open to the ideas that these people had, because some of these make no sense to us today, but would have made a lot more sense to the people of the time period who had particular beliefs about how diseases worked and how to cure them. A lot of these involved the idea that disease was somehow a form of energy. It was an evil entity that existed within you that could be repelled or passed on to someone else, and you'll see that a lot throughout this episode. But some of these remedies have actually been changed and altered slightly to be used today. And some of these, even if they might seem a little bit odd, have actually formed the foundation of some of the medications that you may well have used recently, and things that people are still prescribed by their doctor today. So although it might seem a little far-fetched, you might find some of these are a little closer to home than you might expect. So let's set the scene as we go back through history. Doctors were very hard to come by, they were expensive, they were few and far between, and they often resided in towns and cities. If you were in the countryside, you often wouldn't be able to access a doctor, you certainly couldn't afford it, and even if you could, oftentimes doctors would prescribe strange, often dangerous cures that would do more harm than good. So, the people of the countryside, or the people that couldn't afford a doctor, would often find other means to gain cures. They may visit a wart charmer, a quake doctor, a wise person, a witch, a healer, anyone that had the potential to help them for a price they could actually afford. And oftentimes, the cures that these people created were somewhat questionable and definitely a little bit odd by our standards. 
Take wart charmers, for instance. These were individuals that were specifically trained to remove warts from a person. Now, during the time period where wart charmers were really popular, it was very much believed that disease was caused by spirits, unwanted energies in the body. And so that energy could then be transferred from you to another being, and therefore the warts would disappear from you and appear on whatever it is that you're transferring it onto. And so wart charmers were brought in to do this exact thing. Now, the first technique that was very popular was the use of a pin. They would prick the wart with a pin, they would then go over to an ash tree, stick the pin in an ash tree, and speak words that were believed to transfer the energy that was inside you into the tree. Now, an example for the words that would have been spoken goes as follows. Ashen tree, ashen tree, pray buy these warts from me. And this would often be repeated three times, nine times, as the pin is pushed into the tree. It's then believed that if the tree were to accept your request, it would take the energy that was causing the warts away from you, and the warts would eventually just disappear. Now, different counties in the UK have different traditions when it comes to wart charmers. Another really popular one that's actually still used by people today involves taking a small piece of meat. This meat was then rubbed on the wart, where it's believed the energy from the body was transferred into the piece of meat. This meat was then buried in the earth, and it was believed that as the meat rotted, so the warts reduced on the skin. Now, it sounds absolutely disgusting, but this is actually a really large part in witchcraft even today, the idea that you can transfer energy from one thing to another. And they applied this within their medical practice because they didn't know any better. Although today there's lots of different techniques for removing warts, the idea of transference was used so frequently that people will still use this as a cure for warts today. Now, how successful it is, is debatable but it is a long-standing tradition that people still do, even if it sounds absolutely disgusting. Now, for children, cures were a little bit more specific. For infants born with complications, especially hernias, the cure was often to pass them through a tree. Now, it might seem very obscure, but this is a very long-held tradition that was done for hundreds of years in the UK. The technique varies, but usually the child and the family would go down to the woods before sunrise. They would find a young ash tree. A vertical split would be created in the tree and prized wide enough for a child to be passed through it. This child would then be passed through the hole in the tree three or nine times in a west to east direction. And the belief is that as the child is passed through, the disease is then passed onto the tree. Once complete, the tree is then resealed, and the belief is that if the tree heals itself and continues to grow, the child will be cured of its ailment and will live a long and happy life. However, if the tree fails to heal and ultimately dies, the child will retain the illness, and the result of that, depending on the ailment, could be fatal. This tradition has been found all around the UK in varying forms, and sometimes even includes passing a child or an adult through a bramble bush, which sounds very, very painful. <laughs> This was the cure that was often recommended for those with boils, rheumatism, or whooping cough. Although those three things are very different, they were all given the same cure. 
That was to find a bramble bush or a wild rose on the property belonging to someone else. The individual would then crawl under the bush in an east to west direction. As they did so, the brush would cut them and these cuts would draw out the disease and into the plant. They would repeat this either three times in a row or once a day for nine consecutive days. And as they did, the disease would slowly be pulled out of them, be passed through the plant and into the land with the possibility that that disease may then infect the owners of the land. So it's a little bit of a backhanded technique. You might get a cure, but you're gonna give it to someone you know. So pick wisely. You can either go with the person you dislike the most, or you can go strategically and maybe move your way up the village food chain by taking out the person above you. There were lots of options when it came to folk medicine, and usually the folk medicine and magic work together to help heal you and improve your social status. The passing through objects was considered a relatively common cure. Even today, any location that involves a stone with a natural hole in it that's large enough for a person to fit through is used for healing. Often the belief is that as you are passing through the stone, you are leaving behind the ailments and the diseases and you're heading into a new, better life. And so you'll often find people passing their children through to offer them good health in the future, or you'll find grown adults climbing through holes as a way to assist the healing process alongside medical treatment. This also applies to water. Water in the UK is very prevalent for its healing properties. And so you'll often find throughout history, the prescribed treatment would be to sit in a pool of water or drink from a waterfall, go to a hot spring or simply be around water in some way, shape or form. Water was a really popular treatment and it was also free and relatively easy, which honestly is probably the nicest cure in this entire list. For eye complaints, treatment varied quite drastically. The first was relatively nice. You might be told to wash your eyes in rainwater collected before dawn in June. It's very specific, but for a lot of people, it seemed to do them some good. For styes, it was believed that you rub it with a gold wedding ring. I'm uncertain as to whether this had to be your wedding ring or if you could just borrow someone else's, but this was something that was used up until 50 years ago. And it's likely that even today you will find people who follow old traditions or have cultural heritage where they continue these folk medicines they may well still use that technique today. Now for me, washing my eyes out with rainwater doesn't sound like the worst thing imaginable. However, in Anglo-Saxon England, the treatment for cancer was less than savoury. It would often involve a goat's gallbladder mixed with honey into an ointment that was then put on the location where the cancer was found. And if this didn't work, well, the treatment just got a little bit more gruesome. They would then procure a dog's skull I'm unsure as to how they managed to get this, and honestly, I'm not quite sure I want to know. They would then burn the dog skull down to ash, and then they would douse the person with the condition in the ash, likely in the hope that the dog would absorb that disease from the body. Now, how successful this was has not been documented. However, I can't imagine it did the person much good. Now, one of the most commonly found cures for almost everything that you can think of was associated with hanging. Now, hanging is one of the primary forms of punishment for criminals in the UK. 
throughout history. It was exceptionally prevalent. And so we find that objects associated with hanging are also associated with cures. Now, I'm not entirely sure the reason behind this. The only thing that I can think of is maybe it is considered a sacrifice in some way, that the life of the person that was hung is somehow going to be used to help cure you. Almost that the extra years that they may have had could be passed on to you. It's a little bit confusing and different folklores have different reasons as to why hanging paraphernalia was used so readily. But if you had goiter or tumors, it was said that touching a hanged man's hand could cure you. And if you touch the rope that was used in a hanging, it was said to cure you from fits. There are so many more treatments that used hanging it was actually a little bit alarming. I've spent a few days researching this and there's a lot. It seems as though hanging and hanging paraphernalia were used to cure almost everything that you could imagine. And this might have been because it was so prevalent at the time. Hangings occurred in every town very, very frequently. In some cases, it was a daily occurrence. So for anyone that was seeking medical treatment, maybe they were willing to try anything. And so if a hanging was happening in the town, why not give it a go was often likely the mindset in this scenario because if you couldn't afford a doctor and this is what the person was telling you to do to cure yourself i think most of us would probably give it a try you know it might sound gory it might sound gross but in their shoes i'm not gonna turn it down if it might help although hanging paraphernalia might sound obscure they do get weirder. If you had baldness, it was said that you could cure it by lying on stones. And if you had colic, standing on your head for 15 minutes was a very common cure. In East Anglia, a disease called argue was often treated by quake doctors. Now, argue is a form of malaria, and with it comes shakes, which is often why the doctors were referred to as quake doctors, like earthquakes. The shaking was a really severe side effect, and people were desperate to find anything that could help their condition. The doctors that they would call would often carry with them wands, the idea being that the quake doctor could draw the energy of the disease out of you with the wand, and you would be cured. If that didn't work, they would line your shoes with tansy leaves and have you walk around in them, hoping that that would be a cure. And if that didn't work, there were other options. Spider webs were often compressed into tablets and offered to you as medication with your breakfast, which I'm sure was as disgusting as it sounds actually maybe more disgusting. I can't tell whether they were adding anything else into the spider webs or if they were actually just squishing spider webs into tablet shapes. Either way, that sounds awful. And if eating spider web pills doesn't sound bad enough for you, try having toothache in the medieval period. Toothache was so severe that people were terrified of getting it and they would often do everything to try to prevent it, except have good dental hygiene. One of the more common forms of toothache prevention was to wear a dead mole around your neck as a necklace. I cannot for the life of me figure out why they thought that this would work, but in many cases it didn't. And if you had the misfortune of getting toothache, you might be worth just keeping the toothache than going to a dentist, because believe me, those treatments were barbaric. One of the most common cures for toothache was to have a nail hammered into your tooth until it began to bleed. Then they would take the nail out, likely with whatever was left over from your tooth, and then hammer it into an ashtray. Problem solved. Except now you have a hole in your jaw 
from where someone hammered in a nail. Some of these treatments sound absolutely traumatic. I'm scared of dentists as it is. I would be even more terrified if I had to go to a medieval time dentist. Mm -mm, nope, no chance. I ain't doing it. I will live with toothache for as long as I can before I have a nail hammered into my tooth. Nope, nope, that is where I draw the line. Of all of the ones that I have researched, dentistry throughout history, if you think it's bad now, I may have to do a full episode on traumatic dentistry throughout history because it will make you grateful for modern medicine. It will make you grateful for numbing creams and friendly dentists because dentists were traumatic. Now, trying really hard to push aside the image of medieval dentistry, we have the idea of kings and queens offering medical treatment. It seems really strange for us today, but kings and queens throughout British history were considered to have healing properties. What's known as a royal touch has been used thousands upon thousands of times throughout history, primarily for diseases associated with the lymph nodes. The most common disease was called King's Evil, also known as scrofula. It's a very painful inflammation of the lymph nodes in the neck that was painful at best and deadly at worst. Charles II touched nearly 9,000 people suffering from this during his reign alone. And the last member of the royal family to do this was Queen Anne. Now, she didn't reign for very long, only for a few years, but this practice was done till 1707. Now, that might seem like a really long time ago, but when you actually think about how many generations ago that is, it isn't as many as you'd think. People would be lining up to be offered the royal touch so that their ailments may disappear. Now, of course, it's difficult to know how often this actually worked, and it's very rare that you would find someone wanting to speak against a member of the royal family, particularly not the reigning king or queen, so it's likely the results were mixed, but very few mentioned it. Now, though some of these may seem really difficult to believe, folk medicine actually has a place in the modern world. There are loads of treatments that were done several hundred years ago that are still used today in one form or another, usually, however, in an altered or more concentrated form. An example of this is the use of copper bracelets and rings. Today, these are commonly worn for the effects of rheumatism, but historically, they were often prescribed for colic and gallstones. And we have documentation of this going back over 1,500 years. Beyond that are herbs and plants. A lot of the medication that we see today are derived from natural plants. The sap of a willow tree was primarily used to treat fevers. Now, the active ingredient, salicylic acid, is still used today in the form of aspirin. Historically, witches were often also healers of the village or town, and so it's documented that witches would create a poultice of mould made from bread and yeast, which was used to treat infections. Today, we have something similar in the form of penicillin. So although a lot of treatment may seem absolutely ridiculous, and honestly more dangerous than it's worth, there definitely are a few things that have stayed with us even today. And it's likely that in a few hundred years, people are going to be looking back on our form of medicine and laughing at how primitive it is, because really, 
Progress is being made all the time. What might be considered safe and acceptable today may well be laughed at in 200 years, just as we may look at dentists from the medieval period and cringe and cry inside and be terrified of dentists forever. So I hope that this taught you a little bit about folk medicine around the UK. I hope it made you just a little bit more glad that we have modern medicine. Boy oh boy, am I glad that I don't have to do half of these things on this list. I am definitely glad about that dentist thing. Mm -mm, no chance, I am not going to a medieval dentist. So I hope that you did enjoy this episode. I hope it taught you a little bit about folk medicine in the UK. If you did enjoy it, I will be coming out with more episodes in the future about different topics of folklore, mythology, fairies and spirits and the like, and just the things that I find really interesting about British history and folklore. So I really hope that you enjoyed it, and I really hope that I can get you back to the Blackthorn Arch next week for another instalment. If you do want to check out the podcast or video form of this episode, I will leave the links wherever I can, but this is available on podcast platforms, and it's also available in video form on YouTube. So if you would like to see who's talking to you, you can check the podcast out on YouTube, the same name, and hopefully I'll see you back again for next week's episode.